So finding the line between honouring your emotions and drowning in your emotions is in, in, in some ways part of the art of, of resilience. On the show today, Dr. Helen Street. She's here to talk about contextual well-being and how schools can plant the seeds for all learners to flourish. Firstly, to all my listeners, thanks so much for your support over the years. I'm really proud to say that this podcast has now been downloaded in more than 85 countries around the world and continues to increase in listenership each month. And for this, I have a lot of gratitude. Having done over 200 episodes, I have put thousands of hours into this podcast. Through researching and preparing for episodes, recording them, and editing them for release. It's a lot of work, but I really do love it. And I also appreciate your support and for sharing these episodes with anyone who you think may benefit from listening to them. Due to a very busy summer, I took a hiatus from recording, but over the next few weeks, I will be recording several episodes with some very well-known authors, speakers, and presenters. So I really do hope that you will tune in to these upcoming episodes and, uh, again, share them with whoever you feel will benefit from listening to them. In today's episode, I feel very lucky to have Dr. Helen Street back on my show for a second time. The first time Helen came on was in March of 2020. And in that episode, we spoke in depth about her book, Contextual Wellbeing. It's a fantastic book that I recommend to all listeners of my podcast because there's so much value in it. I've included a link to the podcast we recorded in March 2020 in the show notes of today's episode for anyone wanting to have a listen to it. And to frame up today's episode, I want to share with you all the deep respect that I have for Helen and the work she does in the field of education. She has devoted her life to advocating for school contextual reform and the revolutionizing of traditional education systems. Helen is currently an honorary associate professor in the Graduate School of Education at the University of Western Australia and is also the chair of Positive Schools along with her partner, Neil Portman. You will hear all about Positive Schools today and where you can find it. Um, So stay tuned for that. Helen firmly believes that our role as educators is not to tell someone how to be well or to reward them for behaving well. We have to provide young people with a context in which they can flourish. Those are her own words. And I really do love my conversations with Helen 
and I hope you all find the same value in the insight and life lessons that she shares in today's episode. As always, thanks for listening, and without further ado, my episode with the inspiring Dr. Helen Street. Okay, Helen, it's great to have you back on the show, and for the listeners right now, um, even though it's 2022 and technology is supposed to be so advanced, I've never had so much technical difficulty over the past couple weeks with my podcast, and last week we were supposed to record and it didn't work out, and this week we're about 15 minutes late recording because of technical difficulties, but we made it happen, and I sincerely want to thank you for your time today, Helen. Oh, you're welcome. It's nice to connect, Andy, and, and um, I'm glad we both persevered. We've learned lots about all the various platforms you can talk to people online. Yeah, exactly. And the last time you were on my show was August 2020, and we talked about Positive Schools, the initiative. We talked about your book, Contextual Wellbeing. And I thought yeah. just given that, you know, two years has, has passed and we've gone through wow. more of more of covid uh, I, I wanted to have you back on the show to share your recent learning and your your initiative with po- Positive Schools. But before we begin, can we just do a flyover of early life to set the context and let the listeners know uh, where you grew up and what early life was like for you? For sure. Well, gosh, well, first, I can hardly believe it's been two years and... Um, how long ago does August 2020 seem? But, yeah. Um, so thinking about way beyond that, um, so I grew up in England. Um, I, I lived the first, just over the first 30 years of my life in England. Um, grew up in the countryside and uh, in Norfolk, for people that know England, and went to university there. Um, attempted various career paths but kept being drawn back to psychology and ended up uh, studying psychology and doing a PhD in psychology. And um, the PhD was was in um, looking at causes of depression. And in particular, I became interested in goal setting and people's understandings of success and well-being as a way of predicting vulnerability or not to depression. And so that sort of pathway into poor mental health started to give me an interest into um, positive mental health and how people conceptualize that and what that, the impact of that. Um, So when I, when I finished studying my PhD in Sheffield, which is in the sort of, was actually dead middle in England, right in the middle, but we we call it the North because it's way above London. Um, So I left Sheffield and I moved to Australia where I've lived ever since. I spent my first year in Queensland working, um, uh, in a central Queensland university and lecturing there in psychology and continuing and sort of expanding my research ideas about how people set their goals and what motivates them and how they understand well-being. I, and I, I really feel that, that when people are struggling, they can spend a lot of time, we, we can spend a lot of time thinking about what that struggle is about um, and wanting to be better and wanting to feel happier but not necessarily spending a huge amount of time thinking about what that means and what that looks like in action and 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 challenging and questioning 
our understandings of well-being as if you know they are workable and worthwhile and and meaningful for us we tend we tend to take it at face value that what we think will make us happier will make us happier rather than challenging that notion in ourselves so after my year in queensland i moved to um western australia where i've lived ever since i'm my partner here i have three children together who are now all um teenagers one is um at uni two are at high school so i've got three adolescent girls in the family um which uh keeps me on my toes <laughs> every day and and keeps really understanding i think that when you're looking at mental health and well-being and how people operate in the world that that everybody is unique and you can talk in generalities which i often do um and you can come up with ideas and strategies but you're never going to find some sort of magical key or something that works for everyone or is even understood by everyone resonates with everyone and i think that's really important to keep in mind so definitely that parent journey helps inform me and keeps me very human in my work um and then so with meal in the last i suppose since 2007 2008 um we developed positive schools which is an initiative which looks to help schools better understand mental health in particular positive mental health and well-being and how to support that sustainably and effectively and equitably in their school populations and a big part of that has been running conferences around australia and also in hong kong and and singapore over the years um obviously the pandemic sort of like threw a lot of that up into the air but it it um did sort of encourage us to diversify and build an online platform which is now running as well and we're very excited to bring the conferences back in person this year and in addition to this i've i've continued to be interested in my own research and understanding and with the background in social psychology i feel i sort of bring something novel and uh different to that sort of the well-being landscape and that most people working in it come from a more clinical background and so i i hope that i bring a voice that that keeps reminding people that we're not just individuals we're social creatures we're people and we when we need to understand well-being we need to understand how to support mental health we need to think and understand ourselves as social creatures who need to be connected to the world around us when i think of everything you're saying right now helen you know i i'm really drawn to dr martin seligman's work around positive psychology and you know when i think of martin seligman and being a clinical psychologist for so many years he became so exhausted and fed up with looking at what's wrong with people you know the traditional model of clinical psychology was what's wrong with people and and to try to fix them and he flipped the paradigm on its head when he decided to choose to double down on what's actually working and and what is good in a person's life and in developing the positive psychology model he really focused on gratitude and getting people to look at their context and their life through the lens of what's working rather than what's not did martin seligman's work around positive psychology resonate with you uh, in your career as part of your process with finding your path with positive schools 
Well, I guess yes and no is the answer to that. I have to say I'm not a huge fan of that model um, for, for several reasons. I, I I think that a lot of people around the same time were starting to be more focused on what are the ingredients of well-being, how do we define a good life, what is success. Martin Seligman was fortunate to have a lot of standing and um, a very public voice and a huge amount of financial resources behind him to support that journey. But there are many great people doing really great things in the area. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I, I think that, uh, I mean, it's, it's great in that it's sort of his work has really raised awareness of, of people really considering well-being. Um, but, uh, but I think that it's a very individualised approach and it hasn't considered context very well. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's muddled. It's just so confused and muddled because I, I, um, I, I, I think that we have to be so careful that when we're thinking about well-being, we're not necessarily got some concept of ourselves being all smiley and happy and cheery all the time. Mm-hmm. And so I don't particularly like the, the PERMA idea of, of having positive emotion as part of that picture. I think that people who are in really hostile or difficult or traumatic situations and contexts, having a very well reaction if they feel upset or angry or by that. And in fact, a lot of those sort of what are considered more negative emotions can spur us to change and and create a better lives for ourselves. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so I, I mean... I've got very mixed feelings, but I I think that if we really want to understand a sustainable, workable way to support well-being, we have to stop thinking about classifying emotions into positive and negative and think more about connection, about our core needs as human beings, about equity and uh, about how we can connect with the world around us in a healthy way because it's those connections that make us who we are. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. And there's a great story from a Canadian. Have you heard of the Canadian astronaut, Chris Hadfield? Yes, I have. Yeah. He did the song, the David Bowie song, I think. Yes. The other things, of course. Yeah. Yes. So he tells a story about uh, being in space for the first time in the International Space Station and being in complete awe looking down on the world below him as I think he, they made like 19 orbits of the earth per day or 20 orbits of the earth, whatever it was. But he took over 45 or 50,000 pictures and he talked about taking the, the chip out of the camera and he would have to zip it up in his pocket so it didn't float away. And at the end of each day he would look at these photos of the earth he took below him and at the end of his trip when he was back on earth and looking at those 45 or 50,000 photos that experience up in space profoundly changed him and when he looked at the photos it reminded him of how much he was changed through that experience and he felt compelled to share that experience with the world, but he didn't know how he was going to do that. So he ended up creating a, a book, like he called it a coffee table book of these, of his best pictures in order to share his learning with the world. 
And when I, I use that story as a metaphor for what we are compelled to share in our own life and in our own work. So when you think of your work and from our last podcast in 2020, your learning continues to evolve. What is it that you feel most compelled now to share with the world through your work? Oh, gosh, that's a big and good question. And before I address that, I have to say that by a bizarre coincidence, that coffee table book that you're talking about was in a waiting room that I found myself in only a few days ago when one of my children had a, a medical appointment and I was in the waiting room and I ended up getting lost in it. Yeah, it's amazing. <laughs> very reluctant to put it down when we had to leave, yeah. Yeah, very amazing. Absolutely amazing. Um, so, so for me, I mean, as with lots of people, um, so many people around the world over the last couple of years, I have had a, to deal with a lot of changes, and not ones that I particularly wanted, uh, a lot of challenges, and, and have also been very much witness to a lot of other people struggling and suffering in, in many different ways. And um, I think in particular, um, it's, it's been a really difficult time for people who've lived on their own, especially for a lot of older people who maybe live on their own. I think it's been, and have had to be isolated for extended periods of time. And also for people who would be traditionally at a time in their life when they would be not at home very much. So, for example, teenage kids who have had to experience a lot of lockdowns or people who were expecting sort of rites of passage in whatever way that was, whether it was um, end-of-school events or weddings or births of babies or whatever it might be, those major life events and being, having having to change the way that we do these things has been hugely hard for people, never mind the actual impact of the virus itself. And so with all of that going on, I'm sure I'm not the only one, I know I'm not the only one that's thought a lot more about what what is it to be resilient and what does resilience mean? And in some ways I feel that that if that if you think about the, the sort of the pursuit of well-being as being half of a sort of circle of life, that understanding of well, what is it to deal with struggle and when things go wrong, resiliency is the other half. Um, we, as as the pandemic has, has progressed, we've been more and more interested in that idea of resilience and what that actually means and for me personally I, I've um so my writing has really um been very um much about looking and examining and and wanting to rethink resilience with some of the things that I hold really dear that I feel are maybe um could be usefully added to that understanding and and from a personal viewpoint for me um I feel that many of the Eastern philosophical and religious ideas, um, traditionally Eastern and Buddhist ideals, um, ideas about change and impermanence, um, add a huge value to our understanding of resilience. And so that's where I'm really interested right now. And I'm just sort of finalising, finishing a new book, which is really all about this topic. So... It, there's still, I still have a strong and keen interest in contextual well-being, and absolutely, I get asked to talk about contextual well-being more than anything else, and that's a great thing. Um, 
and I and I feel that that's that is part of the picture of resilience. But beyond that, I feel there's a need to bring in an, an understanding of change and loss, and and how that how can we be well and know that ultimately everything will be lost is a big question. So do you feel that idea of, you know, Buddhist philosophy, Eastern philosophy, and this idea, you know, I remember uh, Dr. Gabor Mate, the Canadian psychologist, sharing a story about tea with Mara. Have you heard that story about the Buddha? No. Yeah. So Mara is a metaphor for the kind of the evil spirits uh, in our life, the, the demons, right? Our inner demons, whatever those inner demons may be. And the Buddha would push them out and push them out and push them out until he realized that he had to invite them in and to sit with them. So he uh, he called it uh, this evil spirit or this demon spirit is called Mara. So he would invite Mara to tea every day and Mara would sit across from him and he would welcome Mara in into his presence and he would say, well, you're here for a purpose and you're here to share something with me. And he called it having tea with Mara. So it was that time of sitting with difficult emotions in order to better understand ourselves and in the process in sitting with these difficult emotions. Because again, what you were saying about positive psychology focused, focused on only positive emotions. Emotions, but it tends to value positive emotions. Yes, exactly. Um, So it's this idea, do you feel that in order to better build resilience, we need to be able to sit with the difficult emotions more regularly in our lives to better understand them in order to move forward and to ultimately learn from them? Um, I think I certainly think we need to honor our emotional experience. I guess I would reframe it in that sense. Yeah. So I, I, I don't think that rumination is helpful for people, and 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 so there there is a sort of there's a a, a line to be found between honoring, accepting, acknowledging your emotion, and thinking about the purpose and the meaning they might have for you, mm-hmm. and even a sort of like a feeling of sort of despair or the deepest of grief, which is so hard to bear, can have purpose in that it forces us to sort of step back from our life and regroup while and while we're sort of, we are repairing our fractured sense of self, you know. So I, I think that acknowledgement and honouring of self when we, when we go through difficult times is really important. But, there, but we have to also be aware that we don't want to drown ourselves in our, in, in our difficult emotions and feelings or <clears throat> hide away because of them and not take care of ourselves. And, um, and I think that, that, that is a, it's a hard question. It's, it's a diff- or hard question to answer. You know, where, where am I in the balance between wanting to sort of s- sit with and honour a difficult time versus lose myself in it and 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 you know there there reaches a point where we know that we have to maybe go out and and reconnect with the world where we don't really feel like it you know we need to go out and see a friend because we know it'll be good for us and that it'll lift our mood and re-energize us and reconnect us but 
but because we feel down or, or lacking in energy or angry or whatever, resentful, whatever else it might be, we decide we don't want to be. So um, it's not an easy question to answer, but it's important to be aware that both things are important and, um, and yeah, and, and maybe a lot of the battle of resilience is finding that line between the two. So finding the line between um, honouring your emotions and drowning in your emotions is in, in, in some ways part of the art of, of resilience. Yes. yes. Knowing, knowing when you need to take time out of the world and sort of nurture yourself and, and, and unpack yourself and, and see where you're fractured and, and accept and acknowledge what's happening. And that acceptance is so important for stopping us feeling that, that things are unjustified or unfair and becoming, you know, resentful and bitter about things. That there is so many, so much value in that, but at the same time, we also need to know when we need to cross back over, and 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 force ourselves, encourage ourselves, maybe unwillingly, back into the world because because we need to reconnect, and that is something we might not feel motivated to do unless until we start doing it. You know, if you have been hiding away, and I think we see that in people coming out of the pandemic or I'd say through the continuing pandemic that you get used to sort of hiding away a bit and feeling a bit unhappy about things and and it can seem very effortful to go out and be social again or reconnect with hobbies or ways of being part of the world but once we start doing that motivation comes with that and we actually start to feel better. Yeah, that, that makes total sense. And one of the quotes that I, I keep up to remind me of finding that, honoring those feelings, but as you say, knowing the line is from Dr. Carl Jung, where he says, the cave we fear to enter holds the treasure we seek. So it's kind of like that, that willingness to do the deep internal work to better understand ourselves in order to build resilience and to move forward in our lives in, in empowering ways. And it's deeply connected to me to this concept of post-traumatic growth, how we can learn through hardship. So it's not about being swallowed by these emotions, but, but being open and curious uh, as to the learning that can take place when we are not afraid to confront difficult emotions, to sit with them in order to learn and continually grow and move forward. And one of the things I want to do right now, Helen, is I want to read uh, something from Positive Schools. I want you to talk about what you're most excited about and, and proud of in the, the latest with the Positive Schools Initiative. So I'm going to read this, and then I want you to share what's happening. So the Positive Schools Initiative was established in 2008 to support the ongoing development and make maintenance of thriving school communities around the world. We define thriving school communities as school communities which support the academic, social, and emotional learning of all members in an equitable, meaningful, and sustainable way. We work to achieve this aim from a firm foundation of three core values, kindness, equity, courage. So just having framed that up a little bit, Helen, jump into now where the listeners can find the Positive Schools Initiative, what you're most proud of, what you're most excited about in the coming months. For sure. Um, well, I, I very much stand by that um, 
the, the words that you read out there, which is just as well. But, um, absolute, but I guess that, that some of the focuses and the things we're doing have shifted and changed as time has moved, but with that, that foundation absolutely in place. Um, so I, I feel really proud of the fact that we have survived the pandemic and, not, and been creative and flexible and shown resilience ourselves during that time. And as part of that, I feel enormously grateful. I can't express the gratitude I feel to to the people who have supported us, um, the people, um, colleagues and people, presenters, our ambassadors, people who are part of our team who have so willingly and enthusiastically jumped on board to think about what do people need now. Um, I found myself personally talking a lot about staff well-being um, I think that educators are exhausted overall and feel that they've never had so much responsibility with, with very often so little control and choice over the things that they've done, and that is a really challenging place to be. Um, and, and, I, and I guess my take-home message from that is I, I don't think that that necessarily means that schools should be trying to do a yoga day or whatever for staff, but rather to to recognise that they it's important to go at a at a slow enough pace that allows and supports the fact that people are not are languishing right now, and they need more time out. So they don't need extra things on the agenda. They need to be doing less. So I I on that note, I'd just say I really feel a word of caution for schools: don't be too quick to put all those missed things back on the timetable. Um, so staff wellbeing has become a, a big focus. Um, and also a lot of mental health issues in young people have really escalated and increased, and there it seems to be others that have really come to the fore, such as things like vaping. Self-harm is, is just such a massive topic. Neurodiversity is a huge topic. And, and then for some of these topics, such as neurodiversity, for example, you think it's not that it's not been there before, but it's very... Um, it just it, it, it is something that a lot of people are talking about um, and wanting to understand more about and be more supportive of. Um, so in terms of what I'm most excited about, it absolutely no questions, two things. One, the return of in-person conferences in Australia this year. Um, we did hold a smaller than usual in-person event last year in Western Australia and we have held conferences online and if people want to subscribe to positiveschools.com they can actually access a lot of the online talks from the last couple of years so that's a bonus that's been a great bonus for putting things online people can still access them from the, and from all parts of the world but to actually be in person again this year is, is going to be great and I'm yeah super excited to reconnect with colleagues and friends and delegates and so many people who had registered to attend events in 2020 with, have then stood by us and got online with us and waited and now they're coming along this year and that's that means an awful lot and that's very exciting the second thing I'm super excited about is my venture into um, thinking more about resilience and having a new book and I'd, I'd love to talk about contextual well-being. I love the success it's had around the world. Of course I do. And I, and I was 
really feel as well that so much more needs to be done in that area. But nonetheless, from a personal point of view, it's really exciting to be um, to be having this new direction as well to, to really think and, and talk about and ponder on. Helen, when, when, or, so first of all, can you, can you just uh, tell people where they can find the Positive Schools Initiative? So to find the Positive Schools overall, if they go to positiveschools.com, sim- so simple as that, positiveschoolsplural.com, um, and the conferences has a, its own webpage, positiveschools.com.au, because they're the Australian events. But if anyone who goes to positiveschools.com can access anything from there, um, and people can look, look me up separately um, if they just look up Dr. Helen Street or Helen Street. I do have my own web page now, but they can also find out more about me and my own work in contextual wellbeing through positiveschools.com. So that's a good sort of central place to find out about everything. Okay, that, that's great. And something that comes to mind when I think about you and your work, and I love this about you and your work, is that when I think of the work that you're doing and I hear you speak about it, the entire time you were speaking about it, you were using community language, we, us, our community. And it gives you a sense that to the listener that it's not about you being a knowledge authority. And I've seen this in your work is that you pass the baton, you pass the light to other people to shine. And the Positive Schools Initiative is a perfect um, platform for that because when people go there, they see all of these amazing presenters. So it's not you sharing, being the knowledge authority and the only one knowing and having the information. You you have spread it out amongst your community and you invite people in and shine the light on them and their work and how they can support the community of learners. And I, I love that. Uh, you give a voice to others to shine and that's authentic leadership in my opinion. So I want to deeply commend you on that. Oh, thank you. I mean, I, I couldn't do it any other way, really. There's so many amazing people doing amazing things and people I learn from every day. Um, and it's not just the content that varies between different people, but it's the way they deliver a message or frame a message. And and I feel that that's as important if, and and as challenging, you know. So it's not it's it's all very well to have lots of knowledge and information and facts and things, but how do you communicate that? And and I was I was talking to um, actually my my editor from Contextual Wellbeing about this fairly recently about the difficulty of trying to sort of succinctly, simply communicate hard-won information. And it's a challenge. So it's, yeah, it's a joy to have. We've got, um, I think, well over 60 internationally known experts at positiveschools.com who have contributed presentations, many of whom I've had conversations with, which we've recorded, who have conference talks, uh, written articles, it's great. It's so good. It's good to feel part of, of that broader, fantastic community. And, of course, you're up there too, Andy. You're, you're one of those people. Yeah, thank you. And, yeah, I, I did a presentation for you last year, and I, I really appreciated the opportunity. And um, when you talked about neurodiversity, that's a, 
such an important theme in, in my life and my work. And I heard Oprah Winfrey tell a story that just really struck home. And what she said was when she was filming uh, a movie early in her career, it might have been uh, the movie uh, The Color Purple. But what she talked about is uh, uh, the director was telling her to, in, in one scene, to tuck a child into bed. Right. So she goes to the bed and she starts like tucking the sheets in and like fluffing up the sheets. And, and then he cuts, he says, cut. And he's like, Oprah, I need you to tuck the child in. And then she's really anxious and nervous because she thought she was. So in the second, you know, the second time they recorded it, she does the exact same thing. She just tucks the covers in and she's not even paying attention to the child. And the director cuts again and says, Oprah, I told you to tuck the child in. And then she was kind of startled and she started crying. And in that moment, the director realized that she did not know what tucking the child in meant because she herself had never experienced what that was like in her life. She was never tucked in as a child and had a loving parent, you know, tuck her into bed and kiss her. And it, it kind of revealed to him that he made an assumption that she knew what he was talking about. And I'm using that story as a metaphor for being an educator. And we use language with kids in a way sometimes where we assume they, they know what we mean. And they come from such diverse backgrounds and experiences and they all learn differently and they have all of these different experiences in their life that had led them to that moment that everybody learns differently. And that's the, the root of what neurodiversity is all about. So can you just speak a little more to that and advice you have to leaders of schools who are trying to create the condition for all learners to thrive? Um, wow, big question. I mean, yeah, it's good to be reminded that obviously our experiences absolutely lead to us interpreting and seeing the world very differently. And on that note, I was recently putting that image of, you know, the, the black and blue, gold and white dress illusion that mm-hmm. was virally around the world that people see it one way or the other. And I'm I'm a gold and white person myself, but like my partner Neil sees it as blue and black, and we can't see what each other are seeing. And I recently read somebody who a neuroscientist who was describing why we see the same thing so differently. And he was saying it's really we now think it's because of having different experiences, and the different experiences that you've had teach your brain to interpret what you're seeing now. And for some people, that leads them to think that the lighting around the dress is daylight, and for others, they think it's artificial light. And and so how your brain interprets what they see now is based on what's happened, and that then leads them to come out with a different conclusion about what they're seeing, and, of course, very, very different outcomes from that. Um, So just in support of that Oprah's story, it's um, I, I thought that was quite powerful and because we can demonstrate it and and see that such stark differences and looking at exactly the same thing so easily um 
I, I think with with schools and thinking about neurodiversity, uh, then we have to t- sort of think a bit more about equity. And if we could better understand and support equity, neurodiversity would be less of an issue. Mm-hmm. Whereas, unfortunately, at the moment, the majority of schools are very much about sort of playing a zero-sum game and success is is seen as something that comes at the expense of others not being so successful. You know, success is I got the top mark or I won the award or um, I'm in the top group. And, of course, for there to be a top anything or an award about anything, there has to be people who aren't in that group or didn't get that award or a, a lesser and as, as soon as we start putting everything in a hierarchy like that and making it competitive and thinking uh, uh, in those ways about performance, um, then we're always going to be judging some ways of doing things as being superior to others. Whereas if we could sort of take a step back and think more about trying to to support motivation in in schools by ensuring that everybody's key needs are met and here I refer to self-determination theory and um, Richard Grant and Edward Deasy's work on understanding that whoever we are, whatever uh, level of neurodiversity or not we have or whatever diff- other differences we might have, we all need have these same key three needs for feeling that we have deep uh, authentic relationships with others that we have a voice and, and some sort of sense of agency in our in our life and some sense of control and choice, and that we also have a sense that we're progressing and learning and growing, that sense of growing competency. And if we could focus on ensuring that everybody, no matter who, has these um, these needs being met in an equitable so we're, and we're looking at that in an equitable way, then it suddenly sort of all those differences between different people are just less of an issue full stop. Um, but at the moment, you know, if we say, well, gosh, there's going to be a, you know, a prize for who can, uh, I don't know, um, is, is best at maths, say, then suddenly we're saying that people who have a maths brain are in some way superior to people who aren't in this particular sense. And that's problematic. Um, yeah, so I think that if we can, in a way, to, to think about equity is to uh, is to think about how to be more inclusive and accepting of, of diversity of all sorts, all sorts. Yeah, what, what really comes to mind when I hear you talk about that is the language used by some educators. And I know educators are, are doing the very best they can. And sometimes there's a labeling of kids and yeah. labeling of young people and um, I came across a quote by, his name is uh, Thorne uh, Kierkegaard. Uh, I think he's a Scandinavian uh, philosopher, but what he said, the quote is, once you label me, you negate me. And I, I just think, you know, with universal design for learning, which is about identifying barriers and what gets in the way and removing those barriers so all learners can thrive, when I hear language being used that labels certain kids as not getting it, not being able to do it, always misbehaving, 
you know, it's, it's negating who they are and, and what they're capable of. And that's been a focus of mine in, in my work. And when I have been uh, lucky enough to train teachers recently is that idea of identifying the barriers that get in the way of them, the students flourishing, right? Um, it's, it's, I don't know if I'd say negating them, but it's limiting them, isn't it? Yes. That's what it's really limiting people. And it'd be better to say, you know, you have to refer to context. And, and really that's what I, I talk a lot about when I talk about contextual well-being. Um, to say, and it even applies to sort of um, coming back to neurodiversity or, th- you know, say thinking about somebody who maybe have a, has a diagnosis of ADD and say that, that, that people, that might lead them to them struggling to sort of stay focused and pay attention in, in class. But even people with that diagnosis can find in other contexts they might be really actually quite engaged in what they're doing and very focused. So even something that's a sweeping diagnosis like that tends to be contextually based. So it's about, you know, rather than saying to a child, um, you're, you're a, you can't behave or you're, you're um, a disruptive child, say, which is an a, a unhelpful label, um, it'd be better to say you're being this context demands focus and quiet, not disruptive behavior or not sort of lively and excited behavior. So you're sort of looking at what's the appropriate behavior in a context as opposed to saying and, and allowing for children, for all people, to behave differently according to the context. And so then poor behavior or unwanted behavior is more about behavior that doesn't fit well with the with the context and the aims of that context as opposed to something wrong within the child right and that goes to the use of language uh, and using language in, in in empowering ways uh and i i think the very best educators build the skill of being able to use language in empowering ways and they learn to always be aware of the language they're using and to be careful with the language they're using and um, in segueing into the last part of the podcast I just want to ask you one last thing to leave the listeners with but I do want to share a quick story I heard Uh, in a commencement speech given by Denzel Washington and in reflecting on his own life and overcoming hardship and developing resilience early on in in his career when he uh, experienced many failures, he talks about this idea to always reflect forward and to think at the end of your life what you will have wanted to achieve or what you will have achieved. And he shares the story, he calls it um, the the ghosts of unfulfilled human potential. And he says, imagine you're on your deathbed and standing around you are the ghosts representing your unfulfilled potential. And these ghosts are the uh, ideas you never acted on or the talents you didn't use. And they are standing around your bed and they're angry and they're disappointed and they're upset. And they came to you because you could have brought them to life but now they have to go to the grave with you together. And what Denzel Washington asks the audience, the graduates is, so I ask you today, how many ghosts are going to be around your bed when your time comes? And when you project forward in your own life and you 
one day look back on the potential you fulfilled within yourself, what will you be most proud of when you reflect back on your life and what you achieved and what you hope to achieve and continue to strive toward uh, in your life? Um, wow. Um, I guess I, I, I personally think that, that I don't think that there is a sort of a limited set of things that people, any one person could achieve. I, I think there are so many different directions and things that you could have learned. I could have, I'm sure, done pretty well in a lot of different careers and gone in different directions. And, you know, just if I think about, say, places I'd like to visit or countries in the world and things I'd like to do, I won't even skim the surface of that. But I don't think that is a reason to think I'm going to like end my life filled with regrets that all the, the, the fact that they're in some ways, the more things you do, the more you uncover the, there is to do, isn't there? So yeah. I, my father used to say that knowledge is, is, is a circle and everything you don't know is on the outside of the circle. And as the circle grows, the outside gets bigger and bigger. Yeah, yeah, and it's, it's true. So I feel, I don't know that I think in terms of, of, oh my gosh, what are the things that I must do before I die? Like it's some sort of bucket list all the way or something. But I'd like to, I'd hope that when people would remember me, that they would think of me as a, a nice person. It's as simple as that, as, as a good person and as someone who was able to make some small contribution to something bigger than myself, which is, in, in my case, um, understanding our psychology and, and our well-being. Yeah, that's lovely. And that's, you know, that's the idea of working towards something. And I'm trying to find a quote from Florence Nightingale where that's kind of what she talked about, that at the end of her life, she wants to know that her work mattered and made a difference. And she's not remembered per se, but the impact she had on future generations is evidence of the impact you know, she had in her work. I'm kind of butchering it right now. I'm looking for it in my journal because I wanted to, to read it to you, but it, it has to do with that. It's like looking back and, and knowing that you did the best you could with the gifts you had and you continued to move forward in a way that allowed you to do the very best work possible and, and reflect along the way and make the changes you need to make to continue to move forward and, and kind of make the difference. Yeah, in part, although I, I do very firmly believe that it's not, um, it's, it's not like it's sort of like someone is going to mark you at the end of your life and, no. and or that you should be marking yourself and, and you say give your very best effort. Well, I don't know. I don't know about that. I'm not sure what that means. I think no. it's, I think that, that my well-being comes from my work into a large degree and so therefore in a sense I'm sort of supporting my own quality of life by feeling and dealing with the fact that my life is only temporary by by working to contribute to something bigger and more lasting than myself so and I feel that that's useful for most people and certainly and sort of to sort of go full circle back to celebrate I think one of the best things he said was that that we have to not just consider um 
having the, the good life in terms of happiness, but also thinking about things like meaning and purpose. So it, but it's, but, but to sort of gray that in terms of, did I give it my best or not? I don't, I don't know. I don't know about that. And I, yeah. I would like, and, and even more importantly than that, though, I would actually like the people that have known me and most importantly of all my family to think I was a good person and, a and, a and, um, and, yeah, worth knowing, worth hanging out with because they matter to me. These people matter to me and I, and I hope that they will go forth making their own contribution and, and feeling happy in their own lives. So, so yeah, so it's, but I don't, I don't feel like I have to hit any particular bar yeah. or achieve any particular thing. It's more, yeah. in that sense, so to, if I have, do we have time, I could tell you one of my favourite stories. Yeah, please do. Um, which is from Alex Honnold, the climber. He yeah. famously solo climbed the uh, Dawn Wall in Yosemite National Park. On El Capitano. El Capitano. And, um, and so this, this granite rock face is sort of, it, it's, it's uh, over a kilometre high and it's, it's just it, almost sheer. It's, it's, a, it's a crazy notion that anyone could think to do that. People used to spend and still spend whole weeks trying to climb this thing. And he did it in a matter of hours with no equipment and nothing protecting him. And if he had slipped and, and fell, he would, he would almost surely have died. So you might think he was totally crazy and, or you might think he's the most exceptional athlete that ever lived. But he's certainly an extraordinary man. And he, when he was sort of like filming um, this adventure, this, this, uh, to climb this wall, this huge team of people who were wanting to record this and make a documentary out of this, he got to a point where he was ready to climb and he had experienced an injury. And as he was starting up this wall, he thought, oh, I just don't know that I can totally trust my foot, so I'm, I'm going I'm to stop. I'm not going to do it. So he, he called off the climb. And because the weather was changing, the seasons were changing, and he, and he still had to recover, he, he, I think he had to wait something like a whole year before he could then go back and then he actually achieved his dream. Um, and he talks about how he felt. So I was quite interested in how he dealt with, with getting to this point of climbing the wall and then having to call the whole thing off yeah. when people were giving their whole lives to try to record this moment at that moment in time. And he, I heard him um, talk about this in terms of, of, of being fine with it because it was merely a goal he didn't achieve but he was still living according to his values mm -hmm. and his values were to continually improve at his climbing and hang out in nature and be, you know, he loves the Yosemite climbing season and tries to be there as much as he can. And so he said that he was driven pretty much, I, I interpreted what he said to me, that he was driven by his values and, and it wasn't a, about achieving goals, it was about living according to your values and that really struck a chord with me. And to really sort of emphasize that point, he's, I saw him in another interview in which he said, I like to hold strong goals loosely. And I, I love that concept. And, and I, I feel that that is a really important part of being resilient. It's, it's not 
thinking about goals as outcomes that you try and achieve and get to and thinking even like Denzel Washington might have said at the end of your life, how many of your goals did you achieve and which ones didn't you? But rather to think about your goals as mere signposts to help you stay on track with a value-led life. So it doesn't really matter what you get to, what you achieve, great or not great, small or big. What matters is did you live according to your values? Yeah, that's a great story. And Alex Honnold is amazing. Anybody listening to this who just do a Google search for his documentary and the, the rock face he climbed was called El Capitano. And I think he did it in uh, two hours and 35 minutes or something, which was extraordinary. And yeah, that's kind of what you're saying there. And the, the metaphor is living in alignment and always aligning our thoughts, our words, our actions uh, that connect deeply with our core values and our essence. And if at the end of your life you have done that, yeah, you'll probably accomplish some things, but more importantly, it's about living in alignment with your, you know, and staying uh, true to your North star and, and what you, what you value and, and what you believe in. And I think well, what, uh, what resonates with you. Yeah. What really resonates. I mean, when people talk, when you talk about values, I mean, if people are thinking, well, I don't know what my values are. I'd say this, what, what makes you well up with emotion? What matters to you? Uh, are these the things that you're prioritizing and living in line with? Um, and you know, and, as, as you know, I'm a, a massive fan of Joseph Campbell, mm-hmm. mythologist, philosopher, who talks quite famously about there not being any particular meaning to life. It's not about some sort of search for achievement or meaning in life. It's more um, about being connected to your life and, and in terms of, of living a good life and, and or a, a well life. And I, and I, think that that those words and that philosophy ties in again with that idea of it's not so much about goals or drives or potential or outcomes it's about connecting with your life in a way that resonates with you that that makes you feel like it matters that that makes you feel like you're living according to what matters whatever that might be yeah that's that's amazing and Great advice to end the show, and I really appreciate the conversation with you and for you sharing that last story because that really does resonate deeply with me. So, Helen, I know you're on Twitter. Are you active on social media? Oh, well, I'm, I'm not the world's best social media person, but I'm, I'm keen. So I am on Twitter at uh, Dr. Helen Street, and I'm also on LinkedIn. And... <laughs> And you have to watch this space um, for advancements on that. Okay. Okay, great. I'll put that in the show notes and I, I'll put the uh, the website in and a yes, link to your please. book, Contextual Wellbeing. And just to close off, when will your ebook, I don't know if you mentioned it, but when will your ebook be released? Uh, so, new book, not, not necessarily ebook, but new book um, next year, formally, although I'm excited with it should be able to have pilot copies available at the conferences but but for the wider for a wider audience it will probably be next year these things seem to always take a bit longer than or a lot longer than anticipated but I feel that that is a very realistic deadline so 
Um, but nonetheless, I'm, I'm sort of keen to talk about the topic and, and ponder on it and work on it as I go. So, yeah, it's exciting things to come, I hope. And um, on that note, I also want, just want to say thank you so much for, um, for persevering uh, with us having another conversation. And um, I can't believe it. Again, it's been two years since we last spoke. So I hope it's a lot less than that that we speak again. Yeah, thank you so much, Helen. And uh, I'm going to close off the show and then I just want to say goodbye to you. So everybody, thank you very much for listening to this episode with Dr. Helen Street. And I hope you come back to listen to future episodes.